Welcome back to the last episode of 2021 on Tapasya Loading. I gotta say, when I started this podcast last year in the midst of the pandemic, 2020, I wasn't sure this was going to be a long-term thing. I read on some blog about seven episodes is when you kind of figure out for yourself if this is for real or not. And uh, with our 42nd episode now, I gotta say, regardless of where things end, I have a really, really good feeling about the work that's been done here. Big shout out to all the guests who were game to come on and have these really raw and vulnerable conversations, including uncomfortable ones. It's the kind of conversations I personally feel what makes the world really go around. That's me. Today's guest is Preeta Narayanan. I would suggest you read through her bio on the episode notes because it just does so much better job of explaining the very unique and special musical personality she brings to the table. Kind of speaks for itself. Before we move on though, a word from my sponsors. I did code marks there. This podcast is brought to you by the holisticpianoacademy.com. That's my coaching and mentorship website. It's a new venture which is still in beta mode and one where I'm attempting to integrate my 20 plus years of experience as a professional musician and a coach slash educator and more recently certified personal trainer and counsellor. The idea is to offer a holistic form of education, 360 degree mentorship for artists of all ages and stages in their career for not just music but also self-care, well-being, workout routines, yoga, and of course, music lessons. Today's episode's also brought to you by every nahiermusic.com, which is my artist website. I have a new piano album out, my debut solo piano album, in fact, and uh, I'm in the midst of the promo campaign for the same, and I'm just going to use this opportunity to kind of add to it. Check out every nowheremusic.com. I'm going to include a link directly to the album, which you can download on all streaming platforms and Bandcamp and direct from my website. Last but not the least, this episode's also brought to you by tlwrites.com, which is a very specialized freelance writing service I offer for artists and creative professionals. And now, moving on to an uninterrupted podcast with Preetha Narayanan. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome loading a safe space to attempt honest raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire we are rolling i try and capture as much spontaneity for lack of a better term as i can in these conversations because they're not interviews per se they're just literally um conversations i'd like to think anyway great thanks for doing this yeah, no worries. It looks fascinating. I've seen all the other podcast posts and um, yeah, and thanks for getting in touch. It's been so long. I don't even remember when the last time we would have crossed paths was. Maybe Bernhard's launch like years ago. Indeed, that was uh, yeah. uh, that was the little concert we played. Well, it wasn't little for you. Uh, you guys that have played a proper concert, I just did five minutes on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it is uh, an honor and pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Um, I usually start with, um, well, start is, that even that makes this sound like a show or something, which it isn't, I keep saying. Um, but I do start with a bit of a reminiscence uh, 
with regards to where me and the guest uh, have met and the history we have. In that case, uh, in our case, we literally just did that. It was that concert. Uh, so I'm at a loss in, uh, with regards to how to proceed at this point. I'll take the lead from you, really. Um, yeah. Open to all, always, all interests. Well, to start off with, how have you been? I've been really good. Um, I actually just came home from playing some music in a care home. And and it feels, it, these last months have been so busy with concerts from last year and this year and um, kind of a mix of huge venues and repeated concerts, like repeated shows and things like that. And then coming to this really kind of quite intimate context with people who you're communicating with who have no interest in a way to look at you as who you are or what your art is they're just there experiencing music in that very moment and it was very powerful actually and just it kind of gave me a bit of perspective again on age and life and the bigger picture in a way and the power of music kind of in a way, just seeing the simplicity of just jamming and playing a tune or singing a song with so much meaning, but having that mean something for somebody else. Mm. That sounds very refreshing. Yeah. On multiple levels, it sounds refreshing because one, it's just so good to hear about musicians playing gigs again. Yeah. And the added dimension you just referred to is, um, you want to tell us more about that? Um, well, you know, interesting, like when I was growing up, my mom was very, um, she, she was very particular about reminding us that we weren't kind of on another plane per se, just because we played music. Like, yes, we had the performance and we had to strive and work hard and it was something very special. But she would always say, it's a gift. And a gift should be shared with who, whoever is there to receive it. And so, you know, people will come over all the time and it would just be in that moment, like, turn on, go go sit down and play the piano, go, you know, play violin. There shouldn't be any shyness or kind of like um, hesitation to do that. And she would take us to nursing homes all the time, um, kind of for, for different occasions. And just, and, and she's always really valued the, or given value to the importance of, being with older people and mm-hmm. spending time with them. And so, you know, I think in my London professional days, like, of course, I've done lots of things with different communities, but in a way, it's always kind of um, hosted by a promoter. You know, there's something formal about it. And even though this is still kind of through an organization, there's something that's really taking me back to those old days of just the simple words from my mom and that connection to something I did from when I was very young mm-hmm. and and also just seeing like I think in my London life especially when you're a transient um, young person from a different place you kind of carve out this world that kind of contains uh, it's, a, it's amazing actually it's other artists it's people from different parts of the world you're kind of th- all thriving on this cultural kind of under this cultural umbrella. And 
And I think when you haven't grown up in a place, you don't necessarily have the avenues to um, have community in the familial sense, like where you might see generations from your family or people in your community who are older and, and things like that. So I feel like London for me has usually been a very specific musical experience mm-hmm. and to just expand to kind of seeing this other scope and this almost real, real side of it has, yeah, been re- full of meaning for me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Today and before. And and also, I guess the pandemic brings that up as well, because all of a sudden, when we're stripped of culture in the sense that we, we've started to rely on it, you know, for me, London's been a city of always having so much action and dialogue and youthfulness. And I think kind of stripping that away has made me really have to dig and discover what my relationship to it is. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, sounds like very, very sensible advice your mum gave you there, by the way. I'm curious, was she an artist as well? No, she's not actually. And um, a part of why I, I got, um, I started music so young was because when my mom moved to the US after marriage, music had been a part of her family culture, but not in a professional sense. And unfortunately, she was not allowed to kind of pursue it herself, although she really loved dance and music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when she came to the States, she always kind of had this vision that at least I'll put my kids in music and make sure that they do it. So she put my brother in music when he was really young. And and then when I was born, I just kind of like, you know, saw him playing violin and kind of grabbed onto it all the time, even when I was tiny. So they started me in like playing violin and piano when I was really young. And, you know, there was no sense of like, this is your professional pursuit. You must do it in this fashion because they didn't really have that kind of experience for themselves. But my mom and dad are both very musical Mm. In in the sense, you know, they can hum a tune and they can sing in the shower and, and they can value music in like spiritual context and they always had music on at home. So, yeah, um, I think there were, there were things that my mom missed in her childhood that she decided to give us. And, and that's been so important because I think when you're, there's an amount of guidance that you need from a figure who's really invested in your practice and invested in your exposure to lots of music and going to concerts and all of that, especially when it comes to somebody who who's not in their home country. So she's making this effort in a country that wasn't necessarily where she was brought up and where her family was. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and went kind of all out to make sure that we had that experience and were exposed to so much music and were disciplined at home. That is beautiful. So I'm on your um, uh, website now, and you talk about the very diverse influences you grew up around as a child, uh, Michael Jackson, the Beatles, Simon Garfunkel on one hand, and Indian classical and devotional music. Um, You want to tell us about what you think that um, amalgamation of influences at such an early age eventually went on to have on your music? Sure. Um, you know, I wouldn't say certain 
forms directly kind of like you wouldn't trace Michael Jackson in the kind of music I make, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, However, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's just, again, it's that thing like, I mean, I studied Western classical music growing up. and But because my family culture kind of had such a diverse mix of music at home and and they didn't see music maybe in the kind of classical sense, you know, like what I was trained to believe with Western classical music, like we're on a stage, it's performative, there's a kind of a culture around it, maybe an elite culture. And actually the way music was, um, like how we experience it at home definitely did not have those kind of hierarchies or um, senses of boundaries of who mm. and who could not listen to it. Beautiful. So I think for me, that was the biggest thing because, you know, you have Michael Jackson, you have Beatles, you have these like pop icons and their music is accessible to everybody. You know, they're big and, you know, and, and also there's just a real... Um, honesty in a lot of those forms of music like even Simon and Garfunkel or singer-songwriters like my dad used to listen to lots of Bob Dylan and things like that it's just like you just get such a range of culture and style and people from all kinds of backgrounds whether it's folk or it's pop or it's rock and it's like they're all kind of there's a human humanness to all of it mm-hmm. and actually we didn't listen to that much western classical music at home but I went to lots of concerts so again, you're kind of getting another kind of style and influence that's instrumental and it has a kind of concert culture around it. Mm-hmm. And But at home, we listened more so to Indian classical music and, um, and Carnatic specifically, that's the South Indian classical style because my mom was from the South mm-hmm. and, um, and she's very spiritual. So there was prayers on it a lot and chants. So I guess, all these diverse influences just gave me a sense of music as music. And there's like a, there's a thread that connects all of these styles and there aren't really boundaries or hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, I, stu- I went on to study classical music when I went to university and I, perhaps at that time I was a bit more enculturated into kind of a, a world around that classical tradition but something was still inside me, even as I was excelling and performing and really learning the repertoire of the violin. I think something was still kind of calling me to that kind of more folk side or to a more creative, open, open with improvisation, open with creative expression, but also open with audiences. Like who's going to come and watch? Who are you connecting to? Who is this music available to? And I think that really those um, questions and that form of thinking really led me on my next step of my journey. Mm, I can intimately relate, by the way. I yeah. grew up with strains of ABBA on one hand and uh, Ustad Amjad Ali Khan on the other. Uh, and then, yeah. And then, I don't know, some jazz fusion in between there. And, you know, I, I didn't even know they were supposed to be labeled under different uh, categories, you know, as a kid. Exactly. It's that innocence too, right? When you have exposure that young, there's an innocence to how you, you absorb it. Yeah, I love how you use that word in this case. Yeah, that, that is actually, no one's used that word to describe that uh, point of view. Thank you. Mm. Our parents, their generation, I wonder what was going on there. What was happening there? Why, um, 
how do I say this right? I wonder what contributed to their lack of prejudice in the manner in which they consumed these very multiple forms yeah. of music. Because they, they were clearly not thinking about it. They were just doing it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, well, what's you, what, what do you reckon, how, how, how did that come about? It's so interesting because that idea comes up. It's been coming up in not just in music, but in various conversations I've had recently. Mm-hmm. And and it's more, I would say, I mean, of course, I'm about to make a very sweeping generalization, but I'd say it feels to me like that generation also, like I feel like with my parents, to some degree, if I take them anywhere, they kind of, they don't ever feel that pretentious and mm-hmm. they never feel like they're putting up on a show for anybody or trying to be something that they're not. And um, even in the States, you know, I mean, my dad grew up in the States. He, he was there as a teenager and then my mom moved later. But I just feel like they're quite fluid between their kind of the more, you know, quote unquote, Western settings that they must be in. Plus, when they're in the Indian community, I don't really feel like all of a sudden they become different people. It just feels mm. like it flows. Yeah. And um, and I feel like that, and why I'm linking that back, it's like that might be in their their way of engaging with the world generally, and when they travel, um, you know, sometimes even to a naive place where they go somewhere else, and you kind of just like you kind of have to make some adjustments. You can't just be exactly how you are, um, and and that's the thing with the music. I think it's that kind of thing that they they there's a little bit less of that sense of I don't belong Mm -hmm. as well you know they can I think they can access things because they also feel um they feel like they they have as much as not in a not in a righteous way but they're able to access it just as much as any other person there's Mm -hmm. no kind of like kind of sense of like this is not for me I shouldn't be able to go there so I think there's in that sense, it feels like there's an honesty because then you're going to choose music that you like, not because you belong to it or it's like uh, expected that you listen to a certain thing or this is like kind of what the style is. It's just kind of like, I like it. This interests me. Let me go there. Yeah, I hear you. I feel like they're less vulnerable to get caught in that trap of living up to others' ideas of what being hip is about. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that comes, I mean, there's something in that generation, I think that also, like, we have a lot of choice now. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of rights. And Mm -hmm. and that's wonderful. But it also makes us um, almost so reflective and, and so much so to have our rights and have our choices and freedom that we we contemplate it a lot and we have to make a kind of point of everything. And I feel like in that generation, sometimes like things happened and there was no choice, but to kind of go with the flow of it mm. and go with the experience and, um, and take what came. So true. It's such a fine line, isn't it? Between standing up for your rights and entitlement. Yes, exactly. I dare say our generation has borne the biggest brunt of it, you know, figuring out where that line is. Yes. But um, I'd like to think that's probably one of our biggest struggles, you know, the diasporic hybrid. Yes. uh, Third culture kids. And that's a beautiful experience too. So, you know, not to undermine like... Not all, yes. That kind of discovery that comes from us 
like our generation straddling worlds and discovering these boundaries and kind of finding how to transcend the boundaries and make make something new out of it. Like it's a really beautiful space to be in as well in a in a place to really like looking to how to express transcending the boundaries from the diasporic experience like that. I love thinking about it and finding ways to reflect that in the music I make. Mm-hmm. That resonates deeply with me. Thanks for sharing that. Um, do you reckon your uh, relationship with the violin, and this is like a, this is a, you know, a long stretch, I'm just grasping it right here. Does it have anything to do with your mother's uh, South Indian heritage or yours for that matter? Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if that was the in- initial kind of desire to put us both in violin quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been playing the violin since, before I can even remember, like in this sense, I could play, I was playing when I was in a diaper, nappy, like I have, so I don't actually, it wasn't, you know, a conscious choice I made. Hmm. And, and sometimes I do think about that. I'm like, Hmm, what if I'd been a bit older and actually chosen an instrument myself? Hmm. Or if I had gravitated towards music, like, of course they saw me gravitating towards it, but I don't remember what that was like. So, um, I, I really don't know if it was because of um, the connection to South India that the violin became the instrument of choice. But what it has enabled me to do later on is just like, because I grew up in playing Western classical music, then kind of discovering how um, how much the violin was such a key instrument in South India as well mm-hmm. and finding how these like two worlds relate Indian classical music, South Indian classical music and Western classical, that became like such a, a big kind of um, driving force for me in my discovery. And, and to this day, like, you know, I've spent years and years with the violin. I mean, that's all I know in some ways. And I still can, you know, sit down and practice and play and still get so fascinated by those links of um, figuring out the kind of, comparative aspects and differences and and then find kind of finding like the sense of the violin just being a universal mode of expression for so many different cultures Mm. do you remember your first memory of the sound of the violin oh it's a really nice question i really don't have a clue i i've seen some also seen baby videos Mm-hmm. So they influence my memory in the sense, like I remember, like I've seen little videos of me playing at home. Where, um, actually, I was, I was sing a lot. So I had a fake violin for a while. Wow! And well, I was what's a fake, fake violin? How's that work? <laughs> it means it would just be like a wooden, like a box, basically. Hmm. So. I mean, I actually started in this um, method called the Suzuki method, which is used around the world to teach really young kids. And um, and they often, a lot of it will be just getting used to the instrument mm-hmm. and getting almost familiar with the kind of ritual of the instrument mm-hmm. before you're even really playing. Um, there's a whole kind of technique to it. but So there's videos of me just singing and humming, but, you know, holding this box. That's like holding it like a violin, but just moving my arms and then singing, humming some tunes. So, uh, yeah, Beautiful. I mean, those are, that's just really cute to think of. Indeed. And and also, I guess my brother was also five years older than me and he was playing 
So there's videos and there's points when he's like, I want to be the star, not her. It's <laughs> <laughs> like pushing me out of the picture because my dad, even in those days, would film us. So it is quite cool that we have some memories on film. Is he a professional musician as well, your brother? No, he just did it, you know, at, at home and at school. And then once he went off to college, it kind of fizzled away. But I did, during lockdown, I had the chance to go home for a few months. And it's the longest I've been home in ages. And um, and I went to visit my brother and he has a new baby. And I took my violin and I've never seen so much enthusiasm from him. He he went and went into his like cupboard, pulled out his old violin and we did some duets and he was not so bad. He was great. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think that incentive to play again kind of came with him having a child that he wants to be able to share music with and kind of, I guess your parents, have so much influence on how your parenting might be. So the fact that we were just put into sports and music and encouraged and and celebrated for what we did, I think he would also probably choose to do the same, maybe in a different way, but definitely music and sports will be a big part of his child's life. Sounds like a plan to me. (laughs) I can't think of two other um, better... Uh, vocations to base parenthood on but that's me i mean i shouldn't comment i'm not a parent so yeah no yeah uh, i'm not giving parental uh, advice here just fyi well suppose my 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 dad will always say like music and sports are just two forms that you can kind of reach other people and find connections with other people and you know everybody can do that and i think he was like my dad's not a musician, like I said, professionally, but he loved sports. So he was always playing sports. And then we were doing music. So I think for our family, it was like sports and music are big, but they're just ways that regardless of culture, regardless of language, you can connect to people. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm with him on this. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Confession, I'm actually literally staring at your about page on your website. Um, which, by the way, is needless to say, is very impressive. And I'm trying to figure out how to summarize this for my listeners. Because um, there's this wonderful account of uh, the diverse strains of music you grew up with uh, as a child. Next thing I know, you're a Fulbright scholar. So what's going on in between? <laughs> Do you know much? Do you know the Fulbright? Yeah, you're the second Fulbright Scholar to come on this uh, podcast. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, It was a very long time ago because it was right out of university. But I, yeah, I love thinking back to that time because it was such a key transitional moment in my artistic journey. Because basically, I like I was saying, I studied Western classical music in university and I done Indian music at home, like kind of in my hometown, but never to a great degree because we didn't really have a really solid Indian performing arts culture in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So I definitely had exposure, but I think something that we've even just touched on is the sense of community that comes from an art form. And um, I think kids are probably more inclined to do something when they're surrounded by people who are doing it and sharing the experience with them. So for me with Indian classical music, I was kind of like the token child 
doing mm-hmm. it at home and I didn't I didn't enjoy it so I kind of pushed it away and then in university while I was kind of in this kind of rigorous western classical music environment still loved it but I was definitely getting to the point where I was like oh I really want something else musically creatively everything and and I started to gravitate towards kind of there was something that piqued my curiosity again in Indian classical music Mm-hmm. And the summer before my last year of university, I at the I'd spent the year in England actually, and at the very end, I went to India with my mom, and I went and met a violinist there, and I was just it really just sparked something in me, like wow, this is so fascinating. The violin is here; it's played like this, it's played differently, and although I'd known that, I just there was something at that moment in time that connected and clicked. So I got back to university and I was like, you know what? I think I need to do something completely wild. Like I need to go to India and be there and study this music. So I had made all these, I I had all these plans before that I would go to Europe and study Western classical music. And then the very last instance, I, I very last minute, I mean, I, I'm remembering how shocked my professors were, but I was like, Oh, I really want to go to India. So I, pulled together this application for Fulbright to kind of do a comparative study of the violin. And, um, and, and I had no other backup plan. I'm a real like, plan A, that's it kind of person. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we'll see what happens. If I don't get it, maybe, you know, what I didn't have like, oh, I'll go study this or I'll go to college. I was just like, I'll figure it out. And I, luckily I got it. And I ended up going to Chennai, which is my mom's hometown, which is also the hub of South Indian classical music. Mm-hmm. And I was there for about a year and a half, studying Indian violin, studying voice, studying yoga, living in India with another Indian American who was also there to study um, voice. And and I was just, for me, those two, that year and a half to two years was just such a you know, first of all, you're out of university. It's the first time you're independent. Mm. I was in my home, you know, the homeland. And for me, like I grew up in a place where I was, I was kind of living, living in a white world (laughs) predominantly, Mm. you know, and like Memphis, Tennessee playing Western classical music, you know, when you're educated and all this stuff, you're, you're living predominant. I was living in a predominantly white world and I kind of had that sense of identity as well even Mm -hmm. though I knew I was you know I was exposed to India I was like we had a lot of Indian culture at our home but it still felt you know your public side is often different from your private side and there was like compartmentalization but being Indian and being a young person growing up and a teenager in the states and then all of a sudden yeah and then all of a sudden I was in this place where there were other young Indian Americans who were just, they'd all kind of grown up with Indian performing arts, like in California and all these places. And they were just like, they were so proud of their heritage. And, and then I was in, you know, connecting to my Indian family and exposed to just this, my mom's culture, but from the inside, you know, I'd always been exposed to it, but to see so many things that she had like instilled in us and tried to teach us and make sure we're part of our lives but see it in its like authentic environment Mm. that was so life-changing and then musically 
I was also just pushed because, I mean, I always feel like I could say I have a good ear and I had a great knack for music, but to be pushed into a different system of thinking and listening because, um, you know, I was still predominantly influenced by Western classical music. So to find, to have to think outside of that box and to think outside of that theory and to do something strictly from the ear in terms of training and um, improvising and just learning a whole new style, it was so, um, yeah, it, it, it had a huge impact on me. I can imagine. And, and then when I came back, you know, I decided not to... Um, when I was, I knew that being in India was like a finite amount of time, but I had to decide what to do next. And I'd had some introductions, like I'd had some experiences in London um, before. Like I, like I said, I'd lived in England before, so I decided to come to England after India, because, and partly because I felt like it was just so multicultural. Mm. And and I and I'm right because I think. Being in a city like London has given me the chance to kind of find my voice across East and West. And that might sound, it sounds really cliche with me saying it out loud here, but I really feel like London is this incredible city that has such a huge South Asian music culture and world music culture. And like for me to come back to a place like this, I just felt like there was freedom, freedom to experience, freedom to explore and and just the amount of people I met from everywhere and collaborative experiences I had, I just think I was able to kind of take what I what had been planted in India and and turn it into my own own thing and start to find my own voice, which I still think I'm doing to this day. Because the journey of learning never stops. And I've even started coming going back to studying Indian music in a more formal sense. And and yeah, I think it's just this always this cycle of exploring and going deep into form, but then also kind of taking your head and coming out of the water and seeing kind of multi-threaded fabric that awaits mm. outside. I can so relate to all of what you just said, especially how you yeah. refer to London. It's also the primary reason I've maintained a relationship with the city all throughout my adult life. I'm not sure yeah. if you know this. It, it was my childhood hometown. I didn't um, know that. No. Yeah, uh, very briefly, but it, it is uh, for, I mean, uh, if it, I were to nail down my hometown in like to one single geographical location where all parts of me make sense, it would still be London. Wow, okay. Even though we only lived there for a couple of years uh, as a child, but it was the first uh, time in my life where I actually lived in one single geographical location. Amazing. That's a, a whole different um, story altogether. But also the man, you know, the manner, the cohesive manner in which all of these cultures coexist is very unique. I've been told that New Yorkers tell me, yeah, we have a, we, we will give London a run for their money. <laughs> I've never been to New York. So uh, yeah, I, I can very very well relate to why you feel that sense of belonging in a yeah rewinding uh you actually saved me uh, asking you what it was like growing up uh, in memphis and uh, mm. thank you for sharing that by the way i've been through similar experiences myself my time spent in uh, germany in most of central europe I've, I've been through a very similar experience there where without even realizing it my uh, you know public Arizona is quite white by default. Exactly. It's only been what a few years since I've 
actually consciously started to re-examine how much of it is actually conscious and how much of it is actually something I'm acting out from a space of conformity rather than free will. Mm. I do want to pick your brain, though, uh, and this is especially of interest to me because uh, I, I just went back to university, by the way. Really? Yeah, in London, by the way, even though I'm uh, doing it mostly by uh, uh, distance learning. Yeah. What are you studying? Uh, I'm doing a master's in music for now. Um, okay. Let's see how that goes. And I'm actually working on the first paper wherein, uh, you know, the different approaches, uh, you know, music, music, Pedagogy has, uh, mm. uh, you know, the, the more mainstream institutionalized Western forms and South Asian forms, uh, the, the very, uh, is fundamental the right word? I don't know. But for lack of a better term, the fundamental differences in the manner in which uh, art is taught um, is what I'm trying to write my first paper on. So you reckon you could give us a few pointers? <laughs> <laughs> it's such an interesting topic. Um, you know, I think as you're saying it, it's a, what's interesting to me is sometimes when we use words to kind of articulate something, it helps bring clarity, but it also kind of, it can also strip the fluidity out of things oh, and the yes. yeah, I, intuitive I kind of flowing nature of this. And I guess I why know. I'm saying because. Yes. We often, and, and I, I know this because I'm, I'm, I'm a culprit of it and I constantly have to grapple with this issue. Oh, welcome to the club. Yeah, when we think about comparing like Western and Eastern training, because then all of a sudden we start to kind of have these extremes that put them on different ends where actually, actually mm. there's this whole gray area in between. Um, but anyway, what I would say is like from, I'll, I'll bring it to my personal experience as a student um, because I grew up learning, like I said, classical violin and I had, and it was in a very, it was not a formal setting. You know, I had a piano teacher, I had a violin teacher and I would meet them and they were really invested in my development as a musician. And it was because of those relationships that I probably even considered pursuing music longer term because it wasn't in my family to do that and but my family was really supportive of it but it was just those really amazing relationships and bonds that I had with my teachers and of course there um you know we didn't it wasn't as kind of lived the lived living in relationship that you can often have with like a guru shishya in this traditional kind of Indian context where often the students live pretty much with their gurus mm. or their mm. teachers and they're not just there to take a lesson, but they're there soaking in the entire environment and helping out in the house. And it's like a kind of communal existence. Whereas I still feel like those teachers I had growing up were very important to me um, instead being role models as people, as teachers, as musicians, and they were so invested in my musical journey. I think I was privileged to have that. I'm sure many people have that, but I do feel like now often you can go to classes where it's like a very transactional relationship with your teacher. Mm -hmm. um, very well said. In, transactional yeah, relationship, very well transactional. said. And, and I guess I know that because I'm also... 
I've also had the experience of being a teacher. And when you're in a city like London, where things feel saturated, often when you're, you can just feel like you're doing something and you're just doing it, you're invested, but it's not, it's invested like in that hour, you know, it may not be like you're really invested in this kind of like long-term growth and kind of complete commitment as a teacher. And I, I think that's, I, I don't teach that much privately. Um, and I think that's because I know that being a teacher demands that sincerity and commitment mm. and real investment. And, and you see that from, if you, if you find a guru who you really connect with, they will have that and they show those qualities to you. And the same with music teachers in the West. So to me, that model is not that different between the two worlds um, that you really have to have that real sense of offering and giving something like knowledge that you're passing down. Um, and actually I, I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned to you, but I, I'm also into yoga. Indeed. Yeah. You didn't mention, but that was going to be another question I was going to ask you in a bit anyway. The, I'm just linking it because, um, I've, you know, that same idea of a guru who passes on their knowledge, that's very key in the yogic tradition as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm still, you know, coming to my yoga training and teacher training from a school institution in the school. But the more and more I read about it, it, you know, there's no difference, I think, in the way arts are communicated, especially in India with their oral tradition. So the knowledge is held completely you know i mean nowadays things are written down and they're in books and there's there's skeleton versions of music but often you need that guide and you need that teacher to really give you the insight into how, what it is and how it is and mm -hmm. why it is and that's the thing you need you really rely on that knowledge you rely on the teacher and and i find that similarity in yoga as well and i'm reading a book right now that's called Freud and Yoga. Whoa. I just started it yesterday, actually. And it's a kind of comparative study between my, the, the head of my institution, like the yoga tradition I come from. It's um, Basic Acharsa, and he is in dialogue with the psychoanalyst. And they're both um, talking about the comparing psychotherapy and yoga in the traditions of West and East. It's super interesting. Mm. And, and I've just, you know, the very opening pages were about this idea of the teacher. So that's why it kind of feels relevant to our conversation. That is wonderful. I got to ask you, though, and with your permission, and um, let me know if this is too, uh, you know, if, if overstepping boundaries in any way. But between the, the risks uh, of overtly cerebral neurotic approaches to an art, which in itself is a paradox, the West tends to take... Mm. and the codependent tendencies the whole system of the guru shishya thing tends to take where do you find the sweet spot for yourself ah well you know what that what you've just said is the sweet spot mm. you know we we find like i think there's a space where you for me at least if i say that like that sweet spot of being able to come back to like kind of logic and analytical and being rational about things, but also kind of having 
this real intuitive, um, fluid, just absorbed, trust, faith-based mm. practice. To me, that's so beautiful when those two align. And yeah, again, like the words can't articulate what that sweet spot yeah, is. The yeah. sweet spot is felt, it's experienced. And, and actually, I'd say doing my yoga teacher training in these last years, I, I, it's hard when, you, when you've progressed and you've become, you know, we're always changing as people. So day to day we change and in a year we change. And then you look back and you're like, huh, five years ago, I, I thought differently. And now I think like this. Mm. And I can think actually in the last, you know, this could be an, induced by the pandemic. It could be induced by the experiences I've had independent of the pandemic, like the yoga teacher training or my own musical journey. But I'd say two, three years ago, I think I put a lot more attention into kind of a rational analytical um, practice, like in the sense, even yoga, like for me, I really, I still love to read, but I, I wanted to understand it, like really unpack it and understand it from the mind. Mm. And what happened is I started to allow things to happen from the body a bit more. And, mm -hmm. and of course, we're always having learning through the body, but I think I actually just embraced it and let go and let that happen without trying to understand it all the time. Yep. And for me, what that did was really affect my sense of language and words because I feel like there's a lot more trust and faith in music and in spirituality and in just being and just trusting what the body has to say to me a lot more than I used to do. And some of that can't be kind of explained in words, but it's strictly like allowing the experience to lead you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can relate to that uh, intimately as well. Um, FYI, I, I uh, happen to um, uh, be, um, oh, it sounds so terrible when you when I say that, like a yoga practitioner as well. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, um, been something I, uh, you know, grew up with as well. And I am certified even even um, great. Uh, even though what I I do have a couple of personal training clients at this point, mostly mm. artists. Uh, but uh, my my practice has moved away from what could be termed as traditional yoga anymore. Yeah. Uh, but the reason I talk about this is because uh, everything you what we just said, you know, just allowing your body to kind of guide you. There is, you know, there is so much more wisdom in the body than we give it credit for on a daily basis sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's I mean, it's a system which is running on itself, you know, and sometimes it yeah. feels ridiculous to think that we uh, we could just kind of, you know, put it into a conceptual box. Exactly. It's so much deeper than that. Well, that was very valuable uh, information, and uh, it's. I'm I'm constantly surprised at how uh, relevant and uh, helpful the reminder of the same is. I mean, I know this. We all know this, but you know, it it is yeah. always yeah really good to keep being reminded. Yeah. Definitely. Well, there's lots of resonances between us. And Indeed. That's really that's really cool. I mean, yoga kind of says it all. In it, the word in itself nails it. it mm. I mean, it. Uh, I don't know. Is alignment uh, uh, an appropriate synonym? It, it not really, not completely. But mm. it aims for it. I mean, alignment, integration. That's kind of what yoga eventually yeah. points towards, right? Yes, definitely. 
regardless of the modality you're using for um, yeah, yeah. using for the same right uh, let's talk about uh, a bit of a segue here but not really I mean diasporic cultures uh, we tend to put them under one umbrella right the South Asian diaspora mm. or whatever but uh, you and I both know there are actually a lot of intricate differences yeah I mean North American and uh, Central European and uh, UK diaspora in the South Asian they're very very different so yeah what was it like for you for an um, Indian American musician fresh mm-hmm. from the motherland directly in the heart of London how did that feel like Oh, yeah. So you're bringing me to the diasporic experience in London. Interesting. Well, you know, when I first came to the UK, I think I was just so thrilled, like, especially after having come from India, Mm -hmm. to be like, wow, there's just so many, like, South Asian people around. (laughs) Um, You know, there's just so many brown people. Like, I I can connect to this. And I actually, funny enough, lived in this neighborhood called Whitechapel that was very heavily Bangladeshi and the irony. Yeah. You're coming to like places that are like, you know, you go to see Tower of London, you go to see the Big Ben, you're in central London. But like when I moved, I was living slightly outside of central London. And all of a sudden this whole kind of like just this ethnic world opened up to me and I just felt so at home in it. And that was so cool. So I guess in the beginning, it just felt like, already to have that coming from India already felt like a a special card or something. And then I think it's only over time that I started to kind of notice those nuances of difference that you're saying. Like, I guess the Indian American culture, especially in a town like Memphis, you know, I didn't grow up in New York. I didn't grow up in California where the Indian American populations are so large and the Indian kind of community is so large. So then they have performing arts happening and loads of families and restaurants and things like that. Like Memphis had a sizable Indian community, but it was small enough Mm. to be, to be intimate and to be self-made, I'd say is the right word for that. And so um, coming from a place like that, where, you know, your home culture of your Indian culture and like the kind of, even the nuances of the rituals of your specific and caste and sub-community in language, they all make a difference in those smaller places. And then coming here, I just realized like, wow, this is actually the South Asian population is very different from how I was raised in a kind of more sweeping um, cultural kind of statement. Like I'm sure there's many people who would be similar, but in a kind of like the whole, the kind of landscape of um, the kind of British Asian culture was quite different the Indian American culture that I had experienced. But again, even with those differences, and those are subtle things, and also it could be just year, um, like, yeah, I think a lot for me could be the difference between being a lot more around North Indian people than South Indian people. Like those kind of differences could be quite prominent. Mm -hmm. And, And then, but I really appreciated how there was still this move, like coming here was also coming off of this movement that had happened. I came, of course, in like 2008, 2009, but like in the 90s, there was just such a move towards these 
British Asian artists who were bringing Indian and South Asian influences and music into their mainstream music. And Mm -hmm. that for me was super fascinating. And I just felt really empowered by being in this British Asian landscape where those identities were being mixed and crossed and at the forefront of these British voices that were trying to speak and say something that represented who they were. And for me, that was like, even, you know, having been Indian American, I felt really connected to that because I experienced that in my youth, but didn't necessarily have the platform to, to express it and to maybe know how to express it. So all of a sudden I was like, wow, there's people doing this and there's people who've grown up like me between these worlds, but they're using it as a way to kind of create. Yes, that's very powerful. Because a lot of times we have a lot of things to say, but we don't realize that they're they they just keep building within. We don't realize there's actually something there we need to express, primarily because you know, we're not really uh, familiar with the languages that are needed to express these very unique thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, this might sound like a i'm not sure this is not the most positive example uh, i can think of but it's only one that comes to mind for the longest time i didn't even know how to describe a lot of the racist everyday experiences i was having Mm. because i didn't know what you call them like i didn't know what my microaggression was Mm. i didn't know what colorism was I didn't know what Blayton Stewart's typing. I didn't know what a diversity token was. Right. And it took me that kind of research. And I'm really sorry I'm going to the other end of the spectrum in order to describe the experience. Completely. The point being, though, you know, that knowledge of a certain language and a ter- certain kind of terminology and certain phenomena, it can be a very empowering force to really n- take your expression to the next level. Definitely. I feel a little uh, weird funny using that as an example but no but it completely makes sense because it makes me also relate to i you know these questions of race and um, discrimination and racism are all kind of you know important topics to address right now especially coming off of these couple of years where these topics are at the forefront and it's made me reflect on my experiences as well and i feel really grateful to be in a city where, you know, there are, like, we are all encountering those oppositional forces, but it really helps to have a sense of belonging and mm-hmm. um, in a place where there are people who, who think the same way and who, who look the same way and who have similar experiences to express in their art, because that does remind us of our, the value of being you. Yes. And and sharing what you have to share and being proud of who you are in spite of those other forces that might come and try to kind of negate that. Yes, thank you. Thank you for making that point in such a more eloquent manner than I just did. (laughs) You did so much better job of uh, making that point. Thank you. Yes, indeed. That is kind of exactly what I was trying to get at. Mm. Um, I want to talk about your career a little because it's pretty badass. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I look at some of the collaborators you've been on stage with. That is like very impressive. Um, Thank you. I mean, you've been collaborator with some, uh, some legit iconic artists and musicians, Nitin Sani, Anushka Shankar, Talvin Singh, um, um, Karshkale. I mean, it's, it's kind of the who's who of 
this mm. um, artistic milieu we were just referring to, right? Like these are these are kind of the pioneers of diasporic uh, South Asian uh, global music. Did I just make a yeah. mess of labels there? <laughs> that that's really sweet. I I really don't think you know. I it's really nice to hear you say that. <laughs> but I I think like for me, these experiences with these key artists are have just really been a chance for me to learn and to grow and to um, expand my my own artistry. So they've all been really valuable and and I guess what still awaits maybe for me is having worked with these artists to still continue pioneering and forging my own projects and discovering what it is I really want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'm just actually, it's funny you mentioned these artists because I just got home from Hamburg a, f- a few days ago because Anushka had curated and done a, an incredible festival. It's a festival that was like a three or four day festival with um, diasporic and Indian artists from different parts of the world in London. And I was performing in a project that is a, it's gorgeous. It's called Shiraz and it's a film. It's Mm -hmm. a silent film with eight musicians. And Anushka, of course, is the composer with a couple of co-creators. And it's sitar, violin, cello, Indian percussion, some piano, some electronics, and clarinet. And it's, Oh, flute as well. And so it's eight. What an amazing combination, by the way. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And the music is just such a unique and I think very fluid and fluent cross between Eastern and Western Mm -hmm. and classical forms. And it works so beautifully. And I love my role in it because, you know, I am predominantly... Um, playing scored music, but I still get to do some Indian improvisations. And I feel like I've, because I was a part of the original team that premiered the show, I, I kind of have a bit of ownership over it still. Beautiful. Um, for my role in it, I guess. And and I've just loved that experience so much because it's like the caliber of the, the musicians on stage, the scope of playing a show so big, to like huge venues, big audiences and beautiful places. And then having an opportunity to go to these festivals, like in this moment where I just felt so at home and there was so much love between all the artists that were there. And some of us I think part of it's also after these couple of years of slightly being isolated, there's an extra kind of um, care and respect and also joy to be on stage with others. Mm-hmm. So that was a yeah, very special experience. And we just toured it like four or five times. But I guess um, in, in having that, it gives me an opportunity to grow and to learn and to be on kind of working with really big artists. And I love that. And I guess I take away from that. How can it inform my own composition and my own creativity because I still there's a fire in me that still has wants to is still finding what's that unique career path for me and what risk do I want to take to make sure that I have space to create and 
of course, we choose to do projects to grow. We choose to do them to have a reliable source of work. And there's so many mixed reasons we do stuff. And I think I'm always kind of, I'm, I'm in that place where I'm kind of, um, kind of digging as to what it is that I want to say and, and how I'm going to get there. So working, my, I guess my point is that working with these artists just gives me inspiration to kind of pursue my own path. That is very inspiring to start off with. I am curious about one certain aspect though, mm-hmm. uh, with your permission, which I'd like to pick your brain on. Sure. Was it ever intimidating for you to uh, collaborate with such big names in the beginning? I mean, you obviously are very used to the company you keep now for all these years. What was it like in the beginning? Yeah, I think it still is at times, you know. I think it depends on um, a confidence that you, you build to, and that takes time. Mm-hmm. And also, I think even to this day, there's there's times in a in certain spaces, I, I wouldn't say, I, I do feel like I'm confident, but I do think in certain spaces, there's, times when I, I prefer to be quiet and the observer and and sit back and and just take everything in, see how other people operate, see how the world works, because sometimes I don't always feel like I'm a part of that world. Mm. And it is such interesting kind of juggling act because sometimes you feel like you need to validate yourself or prove yourself and and speak and show what you can do mm. and and other times you you think actually I am who I am and I'm here because somebody asked me or somebody thought that I was um right for this or good enough to be here so that in itself is enough and I can just do give my 100% and be what I can be in mm. this moment and I think in these environments it can always be intimidating in many artistic environments because there's there's so many amazing artists out there and especially now with social media and this kind of competitive there's this sense that sometimes we need to prove ourselves but i think i i'm trying more and more to remember that i am who i am and i as long as i have integrity to what i play and how i do it and what i want to my presence in the space then, then the rest should just speak for itself and carry itself. Beautiful. And I can only be honest with these other artists as to who I am. And, and of course, I come with a lot of humility and respect. So, yes, that can be intimidating. But it's also, if you look at these opportunities as opportunities to learn and grow, it becomes, for me, a lot more of a, a, a peaceful experience. Mm. because there's nothing that can be wrong or judged you are just there in your most honest form so that sense of self-worth slash confidence that groundedness would you say it's been a work in progress or something that's always been part of your journey i ask for a specific reason because i can't help but wonder if that non-hierarchical environment you grew up around with regards to music Mm. doesn't play some form of subconscious role in all of this. Yeah. I know it's a long, long shot, but I'm just wondering. It's really perceptive of you. I think, you know, I'm speaking from where I am now, you know, and 
I think that this attitude and this groundedness has always been there in a form. Like I mm. think I would say I have to some degree that that's been there, but I think there are points when, you know, inexperience, immaturity, youthfulness, um, and newness means that you, they come out in different ways. So I definitely think there's a more sense of groundedness now than there might've been a few years ago or even five, five years ago, or even 10 years ago, because at that point, you know, when you're coming out of school and studies and you're just at the beginning of your professional life, everything's a new experience and you're just carving and um, learning and maybe you're seeking different things because you haven't lived it yet. I mean, I don't think I was ever chasing fame, but I'm sure there's been moments where the pursuit had a, a different end goal than it has now. Mm-hmm. And and also, I, you know, back in the day, I was a part, I, I still have my own groups, my own bands, but I had a different band at the time. I was in a couple of different bands. And also, you know, the environments you're in with those bands and what you're playing and how the people you're with most of the time, they influence you. And I think a lot of my independent individual thinking towards my musical career and music has changed in maybe the last three to five years. And a lot of that has been alongside my yogic journey. Mm. So it's hard to really tease out what influences the other. And also things that I'm speaking about that sound grounded, you know, tomorrow I might wake up and feel a different kind of, um, feeling towards it and maybe less grounded. And I think that's the ebb and flow of sure. of life. And, um, and that's what keeps it buzzing and exciting as well. Sure. Because I think that's the joy of being an artist. Like we're always having to kind of reflect and find out where we are that day and what we want to. And we hold threads long-term and short-term, but there's just something new about it on a day-to-day basis that keeps the energy and keeps it alive. Mm, sure. I mean, the contraction doesn't exist without expansion or vice versa, actually, rather. Yeah. Yeah. What well, you just referred to reminds me of um, a saying in yoga, it's, it's a revelation more than it is a discovery that, you know, in, in uh, that, mm-hmm. well, for lack of, I think they refer to self-realization, which is, potentially a problematic term in these day uh, this day and age but um you know that let's just say that sense of groundedness or uh, self uh, awareness definitely is uh, more a revelation than the discovery yeah and i think it's also a choice because i think you can go into these environments and have a reason to get worked up and anxious or too concerned about everything and and we have to kind of seek being grounded as well very good point yeah and and make that choice to say okay i could go in all these directions and i could look at this in this one lens and there's so many reasons for me to feel like this or feel like that instead or feel inadequate maybe or 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 even egotistical but do i like what what's really the the point and what's serving the music what are your tools to make those choices um i think well i think i 
think about it and I reflect on it, but I also think that having my personal grounded practice of, you know, coming back to my musical practice, just, you know, nothing can make me compromise the time that I spend with my instrument on my own. And, uh, and even, yeah, I think so. Because it kind of, for me, it keeps me in check with mm. why I'm doing something. Like, you know, am I doing it for the right reasons? And, and when I always have, like, no matter where, if I, you know, of course you might have a day or two where you just don't play or you can't anymore. But I'd say if I'm home or even if I'm on tour, I just make sure I have that time where I spend even half an hour to an hour at least at the minimum, just like coming back to that quiet space with me and my tools and my craft. Beautiful. And to me, that's important. And and I think that's the beauty of kind of the Indian tradition as well, because the craft and that discipline and that sadhana, as they would say, or that practice, yeah. whether it's yoga, whether it's music, it's like so important to keep that. You don't have a reason to let go of that. And for me, that's definitely something I won't ever let go of. And and of course, we need to be flexible enough to when to adapt to different circumstances, but you can do so many things that are practiced without needing anything else. Like meditation can happen anywhere, anytime, mm. and prayer can happen anywhere, anytime. So for me, those are definitely my tools. They keep me grounded. They keep me in check. They remind me what's really important in the bigger picture beautiful thank you for sharing that um you have new music out tell us a little more we're coming towards the last 15 minutes uh, and i want to yeah. respect your time but uh, i would hate to let you go without um you sharing some insight into uh the newest music you've been working on sure well i've got a couple of new things and well one of them is a, an album with a cellist that i work with quite a lot who you might have met as well tara Oh, I'm not yeah. sure if you remember. Yeah, of But course. Tara Franks and I have a duo, and it's called Baladesh. Shout out to Tara. Yeah, shout out to Tara. And um, we released an album in September called Beyond Breath. And it's a very special album to me because it conveys a lot of what we've been talking about. Um, for this particular album, I brought to both of us as a starting point Indian devotional songs that I'd grown up singing, and I still sing that I'd learned from my childhood in a, from spiritual lineage. And I was just, again, like my relationship to spirituality was so different at a, a young age because it was, I was exposed to it through my mom and through her kind of spiritual practice and the guru she followed. But I think when I realized that music was my religion in a way, Mm -hmm. I was able to kind of rediscover my relationship to this music that I'd grown up singing. But Beautiful. I think also age affects that because life becomes l more precious and you're mm. not as invincible. And I think when you, like I remember the days when my mom would say, sing, and she still says, sing with more expression, sing with more bhava. Like, and, and now I feel like there's so much to express when you sing that the expression just flows out of you because life has meaning and life is so fragile and precious and you know mm. that emotion that you just feel that kind of um, relationship to every note that comes out of you so I brought these songs to 
both Tarmi and I just said, let's see what we can do with them. And they're just a starting point. And we turned them into our own versions. Maybe some of them are more arranged. Some of them are new melodies that kind of come from these melodies. And it's violin and cello with a bit of voice occasionally. Mm-hmm. And and we're also drawing on a kind of, for me, it was a real space to explore this Western classical meets Indian classical, but not in a contrived or in, intentional, like, we need to fuse them. Mm-hmm. It was just, this is what's coming naturally. This is how I play. This is, and Tara didn't have a relationship to these songs before. So also for her to come to them with a fresh ear and also bring her own story into them and her own relationship to music into them. So for us, it was like a new birth to something and it changed my relationship to the songs and it changed um, and we forged something new through it. So our album, Beyond Breath, is a mix of these devotional songs plus a couple of original compositions and um, you should listen to it. I'm really, I'm really proud of it. And again, I think we never really had some big kind of grand plan of what's going to happen. But when you make music, you want it to be listened to and shared. And we've been really pleased by the reception we've had. And and we have a concert tomorrow, actually, a small gig. And mm. we have another one in a few weeks' time. And it's just great, like, coming off of this year of not having not really knowing how it was going to get out there. Mm-hmm. We're just pleased to be able to share it with intimate audiences right now. Beautiful. Yeah. So that's been one thing, but I guess another thing that I've been exploring these last, this last year and a half has really been actually more than that. Probably the last two, three years has been, what is my voice as a solo composer? Mm. Because I'm used to, I'm used to writing with bands. I'm used to writing with my groups. I'm used to collaborating with lots of people I love to improvise and noodle a lot on my instruments. I play piano, I play violin, I sing, mm. but I've never really kind of tried to make an album myself or had really something in me that wanted to get out there. And I finally just have started writing music myself. And I mean, I don't, I still don't know. I don't think there's a real line or boundary between what a performer and a composer is and, all, and an improviser, but I've, I've just put out some music of my own and you'll find it on my website as well. And it, and I've done it in a really low key way. I was just pleased to record them and actually just be like, all right, I'm finished recording them. I'm just going to put them online. They're up so people can listen. And, and that's enough. Like I didn't really feel like I needed to make a big hoo-ha of it, but I did four piano compositions that were, they're both, they're all written by me and I, I performed them as well and it's piano and then I've done some violin on a couple of them. And then another set where I was just so excited to actually have other musicians record my music. Mm. Um, and that for me was the first time I'd done it where I got gathered people and then they were reading my scores or you know, listening to what I'd written and playing it. So it was really cool and it was in this gorgeous space in South London. And such a beautiful space and yeah especially coming off of this year just having your friends and exceptional musicians playing your pieces it was wow. just such an incredible day and those are there too so one of them is called rebirth 
And the other one is called Bleeding Heart. And they're basically two EPs that I've just recently put out. Wow. So FYI for all of us uh, listening, links to all of these um, resources are going to be listed out on the episode page. So please make sure you have a look. And um, wow, pretty amazing, actually. I mean, uh, what a journey it's been, huh? It has. And I think these last months have been really enlightening for me because the madness, it's just been like 150% because coming off of it, you know, this really quite still and at times confusing, but also really um, a space of revelation and discovery, as you say, in this year of just kind of going quiet. Mm. It kind of gave me a chance, which I'm sure gave a lot of people a chance, gave you a chance probably to just reflect and dig and have things to find and maybe reconnect to. Like I felt like I was reconnecting to Indian music, reconnecting um, to past experiences and bringing them into something new. And now in these last three, four months, I haven't stopped in terms of being out for a gig and moving and doing so much, so much. And I, it's really, I'm really happy to kind of be going back into the kind of hibernating, cocooning space quite soon, Mm -hmm. because I, I think I, I really want to ask myself again, you know, what what are you trying to say and what's yes. waiting inside of you to be expressed through music and i just feel like after writing those pieces of music i i'm really keen to continue writing and and discovering that and in the way it happens for me it happens for people really differently but i definitely need more space and and quiet time and kind of almost being in a cocoon to let things kind of sing come out of me yeah. So I'm really excited about going going into that slowly, slowly as the winter comes. That was actually going to be my next question, like where we headed now, how do you see the next few months unfolding for you? And uh, yeah, I guess you just mm-hmm. uh, you just told us. Thanks. Yeah, they're going to get a bit quieter, and I think I'm going to be a bit more. Um, there'll be more time from kind of my own projects, and I'm really looking forward to, and also conscious time. I'm going to make them a priority in these next months yeah. and and I think I'm, I'm kind of really excited to know what I'm going to discover new because in a way even I feel like there's stuff to find completely new that is waiting there to be unearthed Amen. and I don't I don't know what it is yet are you going to be um, staying in the UK for all of Christmas yeah 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 I'll be here in the winter so I'm also just preparing getting into that mindset of like okay winter in the uk yeah. what's it like <laughs> and it already feels like it's been a bit warmer these last days but i feel like we've already started to get taste of winter and it does get dark by like you know three thirty four now yeah. and it's kind of you know i always dread coming into this season but i actually really am excited about it because it feels like that quiet time there's just it's a different headspace it's a different kind of emotional space mm. and how we move with the seasons it's just so important to kind of be in sync with what's happening very much so um there is this one question i ask uh, to some i guess not all of them it's uh, kind of connected to the title of the show which starts off with the word tapasya which i'm um, guessing in your case is a term you're familiar with it refers to a sacred fire of sorts 
So uh, you're going to be in the, another one of my guests who I asked the question, if you were in front of a sacred fire today, what would you throw into it? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> These are tough questions. <laughs> hmm. I know. I'm so glad no one asked me that one. Ooh, I'm going to, I don't want to sound too profound. <laughs> well, too late for that, though. You've been dropping some profound stuff the whole time. So, <laughs> too late to back out now. <laughs> it's my gut response. So I'm just going to go with it. Yeah. I think I throw my ego in. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of what we're all attempting at one way or the other, aren't we? Conscious or subconscious, or at least I'd like to think. Yeah. So right now I'm just so, I want to be able to see things so fresh and so blank, like a blank slate and really clear and, and also without any baggage. And I, and I think that, yeah, it just sounds like that would be such a great experience. Like what if you could just be like, all right, I'm just going to toss it in. Now, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, that would be quite convenient, wouldn't it? Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. No, you know what? Ego. Yeah. I think we're done. Yeah. Next here. Here's this fire. I'll just throw you in. That'll be it then. Excellent. Life improvement. Check. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that, though. Amen to that sentiment. Yeah, aim for, uh, I, I totally hear you. Rita, it's been an honor and, and absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been so lovely to speak to you. Um, Likewise. I, I didn't really know what we were going to talk about. and That's all I did. I've just really enjoyed sharing all of these recent thoughts and just spontaneous ideas with you. That is exactly the idea. And really good luck with what's coming up with, um, with your paper and your next podcast and all the rest. And I hope we can stay in touch. Oh, absolutely. Count on it. That's the whole idea behind this. Great. And obviously, if you come this way, do give me a shout. Indeed, I will. You can count on that. It's been a little um, infrequent since the pandemic hit. I was actually in London when the pandemic hit and have been back since. But yeah, I, I will be soon enough and uh, count on it. I look forward to that. Right, me too. On that note, FYI, I'm just going to stop recording. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. Well, having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in.